Before we get into this week's episode, I want to take a moment to thank everyone so far for your support of Not Your Token Minority. It's been one month since the podcast officially launched and the feedback has been overwhelmingly positive. It's really heartwarming and reaffirming to know that these stories resonate with all of you so much. And I really just want to take this opportunity to thank each and every one of you who has taken the time to reach out with your kind messages, listened to each episode and subscribed and followed. It can be pretty tough standing out in the crowded space of podcasting, as you can probably imagine. But what does really help is listener support. I would be so grateful if you could not only listen and subscribe, but take a moment to give a rating or write a review on the podcast platform that you use. It will help to rank Not Your Token Minority in podcast directories so that more people can come across it. I truly believe that these stories deserve to be heard and I would so appreciate your support in getting them to more listeners. Now on to today's episode. Something that I've been asked quite a bit since I started working on this podcast is whether or not I was going to give an interview. At first I wasn't because I felt like bits of myself would come through the episodes anyway, plus I didn't really feel like I had anything that interesting to contribute. I'm so used to seeing the nuggets of gold in other people's stories and doing what I can to uncover those and give them a platform to shine. But then I realized how I was going against the very example I wanted to set. Something I have reiterated about this podcast from the beginning is that it's not about only interviewing people who have succeeded or who feel they have something to say. It's about sharing the stories of everyday people of color, of all minority groups, and celebrating their experiences so far. If I was to stay true to that purpose, then I also needed to step up to the plate. So here we are at my interview episode. I hope you enjoy. Good morning, Teo. Morning, Sheila. Are you ready for your interview? No. (laughs) (laughs) Flipping the tables, this is kind of weird. I'm so used to asking the questions. No, I think it's so important that we get to know so much more about you, the founder of this podcast and host. So there's so much about you that people don't know from the Teo that I went to school with. So let's get into it. Okay, hit me. (laughs) (laughs) All right, do you want to start with the beginning of your journey with your parents and how they came to New Zealand? Yeah, sure. So I came with my mum from China when I was two years old. My dad came to New Zealand the year before. His journey is quite interesting because his family left China um, because of all the stuff going on there. And then they went through Southeast Asia. He was born in Vietnam, grew up in Cambodia. Then he ended up going back to China for his education. And then his family continued traveling through to Thailand. They left Cambodia just before the Pol Pot regime came in. And then they ended up in New Zealand Um, How did your parents meet? So they worked at the same place. They got together, but then my dad got sent to another region for work. And so they were actually doing long distance for like years. Back then, it was really hard to transfer to different regions in China because basically you just did what the government told you to do. And my dad was working in Beijing and my mum It was very hard for my mum to move into Beijing, and so eventually they left 
and were able to move to another region and yeah that's where I was born. Right. <laughs> Do you know why they decided to come to New Zealand? I think it was quite a similar story to a lot of immigrants from China. They envisioned the future that they wanted for their child and they couldn't see China being able to fulfill that and so they wanted to bring me up in a country where I would have more opportunities. So they came together and then they set up, got a house, a job. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so basically um, my dad came over first to set everything up. He is trained as an engineer, and an electrical engineer, and so he found an engineering job here first. And then my mum and I came over, and then um, we were renting at first, and my parents wanted to buy a house. In order to pay off the mortgage, they bought a little shop nearby. Actually, I think they bought the shop first, and then they bought a house, and then my dad would work full-time during the day, and then in the afternoons and evenings, he would go to the shop and help my mum make fish and chips, which is, I think, quite a typical immigrant experience. Yes, and I didn't know that about you until (laughs) this podcast. Yeah, well, I think it's because I was quite young and my parents only did the shop for about two or three years and they were able to actually pay their mortgage off after a couple of years, which is quite amazing when you think of it now compared to house prices now. Mm -hmm. But yeah. And how much work they sacrifice. You're obviously an only child, so I want you to talk about that experience and what did you feel as a child and your experience growing up? I was quite a shy child, very quiet. I really loved reading and so I was constantly buried in books. My parents' place where I grew up um, is just around the corner from a library and so I would always be at the library. I would walk to and from the library while reading books. There's a bamboo bush or forest at the bottom of my parents' property and like my friends would come over and we'd play games in the bamboo. So you had a good childhood growing up. You felt you got everything you wanted. It wasn't, you didn't have nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I think that regardless of the struggles that my parents were going through at the time they never let me feel the effects of it so they always tried to shield me from their hardships I didn't just get everything that I wanted because I think a stereotype of only children is that they get everything they want they're super spoiled but I remember asking for stuff a lot from my parents and they would just be like no and they were very good like that they didn't just let me think that I could just have stuff materialize just because I ask it. And I really appreciate that about them. I think that's what I noticed. You aren't spoiled or entitled (laughs) and you've had to work very hard to get to where you are today, even though you say you don't have to share your attention or anything with other children. All right. And then let's talk about your education, Teo. Mm, Yes. (laughs) People don't know, but you did law school. Yes, I did do law school. And what was that experience like? Is that something you wanted to do? In hindsight, I'm able to say that it definitely wasn't something that I wanted to do. It was something that I chose to do because I didn't know what else to do. And then by some stroke of luck, I got into law school and then suffered for the next five years, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Suffered in silence? Um, Yeah, mostly because I 
had this goal of completing law school, and there are lots of reasons why I didn't just stop when I knew that I didn't want to do it. I continued it because I had set that goal, and also because. I didn't want to let my parents down. First of all, that was probably the main reason, because they put me up for university. They basically gave me a free education, and they themselves had to work so hard to be able to front up that money to be able to pay for my tuition. And so there was a lot of guilt around that. And so I said to myself, I need to finish this degree to have something to show for. You Did know? you ever talk to them about? These struggles? No, they knew that I was struggling just because, in general, I think law students, you have to study so hard, so much. You would know your sister did law. Very competitive, isn't it? Very competitive. And even if you are the brightest student in your school at high school, you go into law school and you are just one of many. There are so many brilliant students there. And so that made it super competitive and really I think I just felt inferior all the time. And was that something you looked at others or were you hard on yourself? I was pretty hard on myself. I never tried to compare myself with others. I always just looked at my own progress and I was just like I was so used to getting such good grades and also because I did law conjoint with arts so I was doing German and history at the same time and I was getting really good grades there but then with law I was just like why can I not get into the A's like this is ridiculous (laughs) isn't it how hard Asians are on themselves we are thriving and winning in so many ways but it's never enough yeah it's never enough and because I was so used to excelling all the time seeing B's I was like no this is not good enough and so I would push myself to study more and study later but then it just got into the cycle where you're just constantly studying and then you're exhausted because you're up all night studying and you're still not getting the results that you want and so that was really a struggle for me to come to terms with It didn't make sense to me. I was putting in so much effort and I wasn't getting the results that I wanted. And at the time, I blamed it on myself. Like I thought, why am I not smart enough? But in hindsight, I honestly think it was because I just wasn't passionate about what I was studying and I just didn't connect with it. And I think it's so important now after having done stuff that I am actually passionate about, how much of a difference it makes to the result. Exactly. Okay, so you did talk to your parents? Eventually. So after I finished law school, and I got admitted to the bar as well and did all of the profs and everything, I started applying for jobs, not because I wanted to do them, but because I thought that if I just got a job, then it would be all okay. But then there was this one interview I went to, where I sat down and I got asked all the usual interview questions. And then the guy was like, he explained what the job involved and what my task would be. And he was like, you have to be interested, at least in this work. If you are not genuinely interested in doing this work, then I want you to let me know now. And I feel like it was like a crossroads almost where I could choose one path where I would lie and say, yes, I'm interested and then have the possibility of working for their firm or go the other way where I was true to myself, where I was honest and just be like, actually, no, this is not for me. And so I did think about it briefly while I was in the interview room and then 
I decided to just be honest. And I think from then on, I became more accepting of the fact that it's not what I wanted to do. And so I had a discussion with my parents about this and they were surprisingly very supportive. I think for them, as long as I'm happy, then they're happy. I think this is what we realize. We have so much fear and guilt around dealing with a topic, but when you actually confront it and talk about it openly and communicate, which is what Asians don't really do, we realize it's not that big of a deal. Yeah. And I think we underestimate our parents' genuine love for us. Yes. Like we think that they just want us to achieve and excel and do all this stuff, but actually they just want us to be happy. And I think that's what my dad has always said. He's like, I know you kids more than you know yourself. And so for him to actually say that, and he's an observer, so he can tell when his children are a bit off. And yeah, it's that understanding. They knew us from birth. Exactly. And I think we forget that. Like, we forget that they were actual, like, people with experiences and personalities before they had us. Yes. (laughs) Just like we are now. It's crazy, right? (laughs) (laughs) All right. So then I guess you started thinking about what else were you going to do? Yeah, so I knew that I loved storytelling because of all the stories I grew up with reading in books and things. And I knew that I wanted to to write because I loved writing. I was good at English and writing. And I actually don't remember how I came to the conclusion that journalism would be for me, but I think it was the combination of being able to write and tell stories Um, And then I came across the Fairfax Media Scholarship. So Fairfax Media, if you don't know, is one of the largest media companies in Australasia. And so at that time, this is like maybe six or seven years ago now, they used to do an annual scholarship where they would choose a very small handful of people to go through a postgraduate diploma in journalism for a year, which the company would pay for, and then they would give them a job at the end of it. And so I applied for that, and it was quite competitive. And then I ended up getting it, which Woohoo! yeah, which is something that I'm still very proud of because, I don't know, for me it was just I applied for it hoping to get it but not actually thinking I would get it and then I got it and I was like oh my gosh (laughs) and then yeah so I went through the full year AUT doing the postgrad which I loved I it was such a contrast to my time at Auckland University it was just so much more practical and hands-on and the stuff we were doing was super fun and I did really well at it I came top of the class (laughs) do you think it would be different if you weren't top of the class no Okay, you'd still have that passion and drive for it, but obviously it showed and reflected in your work. Yeah, exactly. So after that, I finished and then started at a local community paper in South Auckland. I think you mentioned you had an amazing mentor there. Yes. So my editor, Judith, she was just such an amazing editor, but also person as well. She taught all of us so much about our jobs, but also about how to be good people. It was really good because she displayed or showed a lot of the qualities that we learnt from her. So she didn't just tell, she showed. And she would always back us. So supportive, so patient. And I feel like my first experience wouldn't have been complete without her, my first full-time work experience. 
And yeah, I'm just really grateful to have been able to work under her. I think when we get out of university, we think that job is going to be the best thing. And it's actually who you work for, not the company and the leadership that really guides you on your path and the people that believe in you. So you got to meet some different people from all walks of life. Yes, that area honestly is so diverse. You know, in the media, you kind of hear of South Auckland as being full of crime and poverty and all of that stuff, but basically negative. So negative. A lot of racist coverage. There's a lot of racist perceptions of the people who live in South Auckland, but South Auckland is actually a community that is just full of community. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I didn't They have it very well. such warmth and heart. Yeah. I think that's what people forget and don't see. Honestly, they will go the extra mile for their family. They're all about food and bringing people together. I did the education round, and so I spent a lot of time with the younger people in South Auckland, and they just have so much heart and so much drive to be better, to achieve for themselves. Did they have fears or insecurities or seeing you as an Asian woman? Or did they welcome you with open arms? They were pretty welcoming, but I think especially when your communities have been represented negatively in the media, you do have a natural suspicion and scepticism towards the media. So I did come across a little bit of that, but it wasn't that bad. I always associate that time of my life also with people telling me how good my English was for some reason. I would get people calling me up and like talking to me about stuff and then they would ask me where I'm from and then I'm like, oh, I was born in China, raised in New Zealand and they're like, oh, that's why you don't sound Chinese. Yeah, I don't know if it's a compliment or a a subtle insult. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think they do it on purpose in a bad way, but it comes across badly because the underlying message is like, you don't belong. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, and I've always been quite um, sensitive when people say ni hao or something. I don't know if it's coming from a genuine place of them wanting to know your language and be respectful, or as you know, when we were younger, it was just teasing you about your different language. So there are definitely sensitive areas when people do approach you and talk to you in that way. And I don't think people understand how offensive it can be when you just walk past an Asian person and you just say, ni hao, because it just reduces Asian people to just one monolith of Chinese people when they could be Thai, Vietnamese, Japanese, Japanese, Korean. Korean. So I don't think it comes from a genuine place. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Tao, let's go into the corporate world. Tell us about that experience. Yes, so I always had the goal of working for a national newsroom where I got to report on national stories, on daily news. I saw an opportunity come up with the Business Bureau, so I applied for that, I got it, and then I started working in the role that I always wanted to work in. And at first it was amazing, like I loved it. I loved the pace and I loved working with the people around me. But then I think it just came at a time when the media was going through a lot. There had already been a lot of change in the media leading up to that point. A lot of people were getting laid off. Things were changing. During my time there, I think 
things just progressed very rapidly. And it wasn't just the organization I worked for, it was all media organizations were struggling to figure out how do we make money from news. And so, yeah, it was quite a negative environment. A lot of pressure. A lot of pressure. Because the job that we were doing on its own is quite stressful and high pressure. But then you add on the pressures outside of that. Did you feel like you got lost along the way? A little bit, yeah. I was doing my job and I was just doing what my editors were telling me to, but I didn't believe in a lot of the work that I was doing. So it was just basically churning out stuff that they could put on the website. I did get to do a lot of women in business stories, which is something that I really loved and something that I'm really grateful that I got to do. But I'd say the day-to-day grind was just exhausting because it's exhausting on its own, but also because I just, to be honest, I didn't care about a lot of the stuff that I had to work on. I think this is quite familiar with people that are in big corporates. You are just a number sometimes. So people that are deeply passionate about their core values, I think will struggle in those arenas. Yes, I think it's exactly that. And also because I consider myself more of a creative and I hated the rigidness of corporations. Having to go to work at certain times on certain days, working X amount of hours, having an hour break at this time. It was just, it was so meaningless to me. Mm -hmm. What was your biggest takeaway from that experience? Uh, I had a lot of lessons, I guess. Work-wise, I think it was mostly quite positive. I learned a lot in terms of interpersonal relationships and communication with other people. I got very good at small talk. Growing up as a shy child, I found it really hard to approach strangers and talk to people and make new friends. But through forcing myself to go to networking events, because that was the way you make contacts, I learned better interpersonal communication. So that was the positive stuff. You used to have to call up people and hound them, didn't you? Basically. For a story. And I hated that. And the thought of doing that makes me cringe so much. (laughs) Um, And I still don't like talking on the phone, but... I can still suck it up and just do it. Yeah, you've been through that. Yes, and for example, such a small example, but like in social situations, going to events where I don't know anybody, I would have never done that when I was younger, but through so many events where I had to turn up and I was literally the only Asian female there, everybody else was middle-aged white men, and having to strike up conversations with them, having to step into a circle and just be like, Hey, hey, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it just really built up my confidence and it gave me such a thick skin as well because I just ended up not caring anymore. Do you think they saw you and were interested in you and your background and asking you questions? I think when they found out that I was a reporter, then they were interested because they pos- they probably thought, oh, she can give us coverage. I love it. I'm going to use that line all the time then. <laughs> But yes, it's definitely a change of perception, isn't it? It Once they know what you do, who you are, who you work for. What you can do for them. Yes. Which is something that I kind of realized about people in general, but a lot of the business community as well. It really is who you know and what you can do for other people and what other people can do for you. 
Yes, the small business community is what you heavily covered, and I think you learned so many things from that. I did. Not all of it was super positive. I mean, I have my own judgments about the way some people do business and their values. But um, I mean, that's on them. I think in New Zealand in general, like this could be a whole nother topic, but this whole tall poppy syndrome, it is very rife here. You know, me being a young business owner, I can see it everywhere. People want to pull you down because you're just thriving and they don't want you to celebrate. But it's like you need to just stay in your circle and respect people for what they're doing. Yeah, I do wish that it wasn't like that. I wish that people would be more supportive and less competitive with each other. But I do think that there are pockets of that in the community. I have seen that. But also being willing to open up those communities to newbies because I don't know if there's enough support for new business owners. No, I wouldn't say there is. But all right. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about your next transition, Teo. You took a left step and decided you didn't want to be in New Zealand anymore. Yes, I had always had the goal of living and working overseas and I felt like the time was right for me to do that. So basically I left my job to go to Japan for a working holiday, which was only meant to be a year. And then I ended up staying for an extra two years. So I ended up staying in Japan for three years. And it was seriously one of the most transformative times of my life. I don't know if it was Japan specifically, but I definitely think at that time in my life, I really needed something different. I needed to step away from the daily grind And I needed to step away from all the pressures and stresses that I was feeling in my life at that time. The first year that I was there, the working holiday year, was still kind of me trying to figure out what I wanted to do and who I wanted to be. But then once I went through that process and I really got stuck into life there, I felt like I was able to really reassess everything in my life and figure out things that I wanted. And just with clarity. Exactly, with clarity and without the extra voices around me. Mm -hmm. Was that your parents, your friends, work colleagues? It was everything. Even if it's not specifically people saying things to you, I think when you're in a certain environment, you kind of absorb everything that's around you. And I was really letting it affect me. You said you broke out in a skin condition. Yeah. So I've realized now that when I am very stressed or just going through a lot internally, it manifests itself externally on my skin. So I was breaking out in like these rashes and sores on my arms and legs and it wouldn't go away. And I had that for about a year, probably over a year. When I moved to Japan, it was still present, but it was getting better. And then throughout that first year that I was there, it healed completely and it's not come back since. And actually I did have another pretty serious episode of that before when I finished law school and I think it was the built up stress of law school in general but also just the emotional turmoil and so now because I don't want to go through that again it was so unpleasant 
And I know it kind of sounds a little bit insignificant because it's just a skin issue, but honestly, like your skin is like the largest organ of your body. And when some shit goes down on it, like you feel it, it's so uncomfortable. And it made me kind of insecure as well because I didn't want people to see it. Yeah, all of that sort of stuff. But anyway, so I never wanted to go through that again. And so for me, it's really, really important for me to be able to live my life how I want it. And when I was in Japan, I embraced life really fully and it really helped me develop a new perspective on things that happen in life. So talking about living abroad, tell me about the friends you met along the way and the impact they had on you. I struggled at first for probably about a year to find people I truly connected with. So I went to a lot of meetups. I was also studying Japanese at the same time. And I met a couple of people through my classes who ended up becoming like my core group of friends there. And I cannot say enough how amazing those relationships were for me. They were people from all sorts of backgrounds doing all sorts of different things. And the common thing for us was that we were all expats, or most of us were expats in Tokyo, which is the largest city in the world. You know, some of these people had really great jobs. They worked for some really big companies, but it was never a thing. And I think that really helped me detach myself from valuing myself as a person based on what my job is. Mm -hmm. Where do you think that stemmed from? So I think throughout our education system and also the way that I was brought up. I don't think that was my parents' intention, but I think it was an effect of it. Because the first thing they ask you is, what do you do? How much money do you make? Exactly. It's that, yes, judgment. Like our generation of parents, they really want their children to have a good education because they think that's the foundation of a good future. But I think unwittingly that reinforces that idea that you are your career and I don't think that's healthy no yeah I had a lot of pride issues I guess around what I did even when I was in Japan I was constantly looking at ways to work for the bigger media organizations because being one of the biggest cities in the world they had a lot of offices for different global news organizations even when I was applying for those I was like what is going to make me happy by working for these organizations? It's going to be bigger news for sure, but it's still going to be the same stressful work, the same long hours, always being on call. Culturally, I don't know if anything would have changed. And so I think slowly coming to terms with that and realizing that really helped me as well. Talk us through where this podcast came to be. So we talked about it in another episode about how there was this idea of creating a platform for showcasing Asian women, but then I kind of put that idea away while I was in Japan. But then coming back, just through discussions again, this podcast idea came up. I've always wanted to do something to do with storytelling, but to tell stories in the way that I wanted to tell them and to tell the stories that I wanted to tell. And I wanted to be able to give a voice to the voiceless as well as providing a platform for people like myself. Who don't feel like their stories are even worthy. 
isn't that the biggest theme these days. Exactly. Um, but the more you actually question people and ask why and what led you to this path, it will resonate with anybody. That's exactly it. I really wanted to create a platform where people could listen to it and be able to see parts of themselves in these stories, even if it's just sharing the same ethnicity. I think that representation is so important and I really wanted to be able to provide that for people. And, you know, I think a lot of people in their lifetimes, they want to create something that is beyond themselves. And I think this is maybe part of that for me, just being able to give people a platform and to let their stories speak for themselves and to create a community where... We all just, you know... Inspire each other. <laughs> yeah. I think we all just want to be seen, heard, and part of a group. Exactly. Um, so what are your big goals and visions for this? I obviously want the podcast to go big. Otherwise, you know, I want people to hear these stories. I don't have like a five, ten-year plan or anything, but I have sort of had these thoughts recently, like maybe I can start my own media company one day, creating content that resonates with people. One of the most rewarding things recently has been people from all parts of my life messaging me and telling me how refreshing the stories are so far and just how relatable it is. I agree. Obviously, my episodes aired since. And yeah, just all the people reaching out now to saying, I never knew that about you. Even some of my closest friends have said, I know you, Sheila, but I didn't know this much about you. And just being an open book and being vulnerable, I think that's what people are seeking. We are so sick of the fake bullshit and making our lives perfect when deep down we've all got fears, insecurities, and things that have led us to where we are today. So like you say, it's just so inspiring that we're able to make people feel. So before the podcast launched, I kind of went through this phase of worrying that people wouldn't like the stories that I put out there. I worried that people would listen to it and just not like it. And now launching officially and having such positive feedback, is just so reaffirming. Do you feel like you needed that validation from other people? Because obviously you have a vision and you need to really back it and you just did it. You know, I remember we had this conversation and then it became you were getting all the marketing on the design. So you really like took it and ran with it. When I truly believe in something, I would do anything to get it to where it needs to be. And I think that's key to remember and something that I probably need to keep reminding myself like I pursued this because I truly believe in the vision and I truly believe in the power of these stories and I'm sure along the way we'll get hate and criticism or feedback but this is not really what we're you know we are not wanting to attract that this is a positive place of good people and just learning So I feel like you've come full circle with all your degrees and education and childhood. And yeah, you're getting to live your dream life. Do you feel like you are ready to relax a little bit? No. (laughs) (laughs) There's always more, isn't there? Yeah, I don't want to take my foot off the pedal. Mm -hmm. I feel like... This is us at our best. Yeah, and why? I feel like we have so much to give Mm. and so much to do. Yes. 
So thank you, Teo, so much for sharing your story. Is there anything else you want to let the listeners know that they don't know about you? <laughs> There's probably a lot that people don't know about me, but I hope that this has given you some insight into the kind of person I am and why I wanted to create this podcast and why I want to tell your stories. I hope there's something relatable in there for you as well. And yeah, thank you so much for listening and letting me share. Thank you so much for listening. As always, don't forget to subscribe and also follow the podcast social media pages. Just search for Not Your Token Minority Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And don't forget to reach out if you or someone you know would like to share your story. 